0: The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised.
1: On this week's Court TV podcast, I'll be joined by members of the Court TV team to preview some of the biggest trials we'll be covering on air in 2022, including... The suitcase murder trial, the retrial of the murder-for-hire defendant Katherine McBanua, and the trial of the remaining Minneapolis police officers charged for the killing
0: of George Floyd. This is the Court TV Podcast with Vinny Politan.
1: Welcome to the court TV podcast. I'm Vinnie Politan. Great to have you aboard. Thank you for listening. Thank you for downloading. Thank you for supporting the podcast as we begin this brand new year. And this is really a special podcast because I'm going to be joined by uh, my colleagues at court TV, a whole bunch of them. And we are going to talk about the big trials that are scheduled to come on this year. Okay. The big trials of 2022 and we've got some great ones. Uh we've got some great ones. They're interesting. They're very diverse in the, in the issues that will be litigated in court. Um and, and and they run the whole gamut. So let's get right to it. Let me bring in first of all my colleagues. Ted Rollins, Court TV anchor is with us and Julia Gene, Court TV legal correspondent uh How are you guys doing? Are you you re-energized for 2022, Julia? You're out on the road all the time. We barely see you. Um, I think you're uh, officially allowed to apply for a driver's license in Minnesota now.
2: I really am. I spent more time in Minnesota probably than any other state this year, but energized about 2022, so many trials on the docket. A lot of them that had to be postponed during the pandemic.
1: I know. And that's the other thing, Ted, that has really happened here is that, because of, of COVID and the shutdown of courtrooms across America, there is an incredible backlog. And there are even cases that are backlogged to 2022 that we thought were going to happen last year, but have been put off. And I think once this Omicron is done, we are ready to go.
3: Yeah. And it's the upside, right? We've been waiting and waiting. And now, 2022, I think, uh, yeah, it's going to be quite a year on Court TV.
1: OK, let's start with a case out of Tallahassee, Florida. The defendant's name is Catherine McBanawa. Uh, but it's 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 really about more than Catherine McBanua. She's accused of being part of a conspiracy to kill a law professor at Florida State University. Dan Markell. That law professor was was killed. And the two men who went to go do it have been convicted already. Luis Rivera pleaded guilty. Sigfredo Garcia went to trial, was convicted. They were the alleged or not alleged, but proven at court. The hit men, the hit men. And the prosecution theory is that Catherine McBanawa is the one who enlisted Sigfredo Garcia, the father of her children, to go uh, travel from South Florida up to Tallahassee and and take out and and take the life of the professor. And she says, no, I'm not guilty. I didn't do it. She went to trial. The jury was hung. But uh, Julie Janae, when we look at the story, that's not the whole story. Because they're saying this was, was a murder for hire. But why would Catherine McBanawa, a shot girl working in nightclubs in South Florida, want to murder a law professor from Florida State?
2: For money. That's what it always comes down to when you have these head men. But the issue is whether or not she is the link. If she is the one who went and connected the father of her children to this family. I mean she's someone that is really a compelling defendant in the way that she shared her story. She's young, attractive woman uh when she was on the stand. Uh, so that may have played into why this jury couldn't reach a decision on how connected she is to this case.
1: And this conspiracy Ted goes beyond the shot girl It goes to a very prominent South Florida family, the Adelson's, an incredible dental practice, and um, Wendy, who is the daughter of the dentist, and and Donna, uh, her mom, was married to the professor. It was a contentious divorce, child custody issues, and Wendy has relocated to South Florida. Tallahassee, if you've ever been to Florida, is nowhere near South Florida where they are, and it was all about custody of the children and the, the prosecution theory is that the Adelson's through Catherine McBanoa hired the hitmen. but Ted prosecutors have never charged the Adelson's with anything. They're saying they, they they hired these people to kill uh, the the son-in-law, the brother-in-law, but they've never been charged with anything.
3: Yeah. And watching that trial, it is the, uh, frustration is just oozing out of that courtroom, you keep waiting for some more information and you're wondering, oh, wait, 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 what about the Adelsons? Because the state is admitting, then that's part of their narrative that McBanawha was hired, was working with Charlie Adelson, the, the son, uh, and, and but it was organized by this prominent family. Well, why aren't they um, being held and why are they not in a courtroom? it's a just it's a fascinating portion of what we're going, going to see replayed again when when they retry Catherine McBanawa. um but the jury's not aware of that that they were judging the merits of the case against McBanawa on itself and to julia's point at the end of the day they believe or at least some of the jurors believe what she was saying and um her attorney is one of those attorneys that really oozes belief in her client that came across in the courtroom. It was a fascinating trial. I think the retrial is going to be uh, even more so. And for our viewers, it's okay. Let's see what happens with McPanawa. But for Dan Markell to actually get justice, uh, we need to see some Adelson's.
1: Yeah. And I don't know what's going on here, Julie, Janae. I don't understand. And, and I, I try to give prosecutors the benefit of the doubt, you know, most of the time being a former prosecutor, you know, feeling for for the job that they have to do. But it almost seems to me like the one set of potential defendants who have access to lots of resources, great attorneys, and there's great attorneys across the board, but they have lots and lots of money. And it almost seems like prosecutors are afraid to go after them, like they're afraid to lose. I don't get that.
2: You do get that feeling. And I think that we see that in a lot of cases when you have very prominent families who avoid prosecution for years and years and years. And oftentimes it's because the prosecution has some evidence, but they know it's not enough to get a verdict of guilty. But they also don't want to just do it, don't want to just shake things up and have this family plastered all over the headlines, because that uh, can be connected to a lot of things, especially if they can't close it out, if they can't get that beyond a reasonable doubt. So they're not as willing to go after, you know, you don't want to say about that about prosecutors. We see them going after powerful people. A lot of times it's after there is a large call from the public to do something. And you're not really going to see that in a case like this.
1: Yeah, I see it unconscionable that you, uh, you know, allege a hit, but you don't go after the people who started the whole thing. All right, another trial that's taking place out in Vegas, Ted, Kelsey Turner. Kelsey Turner, former Maxim model, playmate, um, accused of murdering a doctor, Ted? Come on, what's going on here?
3: Well, this is a, this is a grizzly case uh, out in Vegas. The doctor, Dr. Thomas Bouchard, Had, uh, according to his girlfriend, Judy Earp, she talked about it publicly. He had as a hobby, um, he would like to finance beautiful women. And the old, he's the classic sugar daddy, if you will. And for how, however, they connected, Kelsey Turner um, and Thomas Bouchard had a long relationship i Not sure what the details of the relationship were, but we do know, according to Judy Earp, that this was a tendency that Bouchard had, and he would funnel money to beautiful young women in exchange for something. And before he went to Vegas for the final time, Judy Earp, the girlfriend, said she warned him, don't go, something's wrong here. The allegation from the state is that Kelsey Turner, along with her boyfriend, lured him out and killed him. They took his, uh, his wallet with all of his identification his bank account information they're building a case but there's a there's another person here that is going to be the focus of the defense a woman by the name of diana pena she lived in the house with turner and her boyfriend and that's what we're going to see play out at trial it's going to be fascinating because these defendants are going to blame diana pena and say she's the real killer she's the one that the states were lying on to come in and testify to seal this deal this is not an open and shut case it's going to be one that i think our viewers are going to
1: love and but but he ended up in, in Kelsey's trunk of his car in the desert. Isn't that where Dr. Burchard ended up? I think in, in the trunk of her car. Okay,
3: Vinny, you always got to come up with the details. I'm trying to pump this up as if not a one-sided case. This, Yes, there is a lot of evidence against Kelsey Turner and her boyfriend. Um, but when there are three players involved, first of all, the two, you know, Kelsey is going to likely turn on the boyfriend and vice versa. And then you add that third element um that third player all living in this house there's going to be plenty of blame to go around and we all know that it's easy to get someone's keys to their vehicle especially if
1: you live with them all right ted already getting ready to defend the former playmate We'll see how that goes, Julie. Jay, I have to ask you, as as a correspondent, I had an opportunity to cover a trial in, in Vegas. Have you you haven't tried uh, covered any out in in Vegas yet? I have not covered a trial in Vegas. Believe it or not, I've never been to Vegas. Okay, here's 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 what you want to do. You got to be really careful where you stay if you're covering a trial in Vegas, because you know you you think oh, I want to stay in one of those casinos, right? No, because it takes forever to, like, get down the elevator and just get out. The, it's impossible. So um, if, if in fact, you end up out in Vegas, um, think about it first. I know it's going to be tempting. I want to be on the Strip. I want to be in Paris. I want to be, you know, at, at, at maybe Bellagio or something like that. But it's going to take you forever to get to court. So, um, right, Ted? Ted, am I wrong here? I'm not wrong.
3: Yeah, stay at the Renaissance on Paradise. It's away from the Strip and – um, you don't have to walk by vacationers on a daily basis. It's pretty depression, depressing when you're working for a living and you're uh, in the middle of that nonsense.
1: Yeah, exactly. Good to
2: know. Good to uh, you know. So, no yeah. so more than five stories. What we're talking
4: about.
1: And don't stay at the Rio Hotel. Nothing against the Rio, but that's where they caught uh, Kelsey Turner and her boyfriend. Uh, that's where they. That's where they were hiding out. All right, one final big, big trial I want to talk to both of you about. We only have about a minute here. Um, the Baby Evelyn case, Julie Janae. And to me, this one has a lot of parallels with what happened down in Orange County, Florida, uh, with Kaylee Marie Anthony, um, a teenage mom and, and her little baby, 15 months old, Evelyn, goes missing, reported late, and, and now it's a murder trial.
2: 18-year-old mom, Megan Boswell, and this little baby, people see her over the holidays, a great-grandfather sees her on Thanksgiving, but she doesn't get reported missing until seven weeks later after the last person has seen her Uh, and this is one of those that really makes the public have all of these questions because when Megan Boswell the mother was arrested it wasn't for killing her child it was for making false statements to police but they had her behind bars and it's many months later this of course is in uh, Glenville Tennessee close to Knoxville, Tennessee, they later discover baby Evelyn's remains. So now it's confirmed that she is in fact deceased, but still a question of what happened. And then there's the twist about the grandmother and the step-grandfather, Angela Boswell and her husband, what role they played, how much they told police, they are also behind bars on charges that don't really relate to her death. It's really just Megan that's facing those charges but still not any questions, that, any answers rather, that have been released that tell us what happened to baby Evelyn.
1: Yeah, it seems to me, Ted, um, as, as we watch this trial, it's going to be like family feud. And, and I think Megan Boswell's defense is just going to be pointing to different potential family members who may have been involved with what happened with that little 15-month-old baby.
3: Yeah, it'll be fascinating to hear. In, the, in anything we've seen, you know, pre-trial with interviews that she's done or been interviewed, um, She's gonna, they're going to have to shore that up the The defense, her behavior it is she's an eighteen year old. One could argue, kid, at the time of this, and um, it's going to be another one of those trials. It's at the end of the day, is is gut wrenching. I mean, the uh, the the just we've covered them before. When a child is the victim, it changes the complexity of the child. It changes it for for everybody involved, and especially
1: the jury. So uh, that'll be a a very sad but
3: compelling
1: case absolutely well ted Rollins and uh, julia janae uh thanks so much for joining us here on the podcast and folks you can watch ted every morning and Julie janae like e- every day she's uh, somewhere around the country and maybe coming to your town your jurisdiction and that just means that unfortunately uh there is a murder trial going on Julie janae ted Rollins, thanks so much when we come back chanley painter court tv legal correspondent will join us from the road to talk about the killer clown
0: follow court tv live over the air uninterrupted if you're watching television with an antenna just rescan your channels now to add court tv and go to court tv.com to see the exact channel position and more ways to watch court tv in your area
1: There's a trial coming up in 2022 down in Palm Beach County, Florida. Um, This this is some story, and and it goes way, way back. I mean, it goes back to 1990 when Marlene Warren answered the front door of her home, and there was a clown there, a clown with balloons, flowers, and a gun. And that clown shot and killed Marlene Warren. And for a long, long time, for decades, nobody, nobody was held responsible. No one was charged. There was an investigation. There were suspicions. Uh, But now this case has come full circle. And in 2022, we are talking, what is this? 10, 20, 32 years later, 32 years later, Sheila Keen Warren will be tried. Let me bring in our next guest, Chanley Painter, Court TV legal correspondent. Uh, like Julie Janay, on the road all the time. She's on the road now joining us. Uh, Chanley, uh, thanks so much. Uh, this trial, like, wow. Wow. The more you dig in, the more you're like, I cannot believe some of the facts and some of the people and characters involved here.
5: I know Vinny, this has been a trial I have been looking forward to for so long. It is a cold case, as you mentioned, it's 30 years almost in the making. And the set of facts in and of themselves, we have this mother making breakfast for her children. She goes to the, to the door when the doorbell rings and finds a clown at the door with flowers and balloons and answers the door even says something like, how nice. And then she shot to death, it's unbelievable. And I also am intrigued about the role of forensic and forensics and technology in this case, Minnie, because until they were able to uh, garner advanced DNA testing, did they not have enough to charge someone in this murder?
1: Yeah, you look at the the reason this cold case is now being <clears throat> brought to trial is because of, of some DNA testing. And that can be very compelling. You know, early on with this case though, the, the big problem uh, in the investigation, was the testimony or the statements by the son, who was a witness, who saw the clown and described the clown as being kind of big, right? Like like over six feet tall. So everyone was looking for a male clown.
5: Exactly. And that, I think, still is going to be a big part of the defense when this does go to trial, Vinny. Uh, Joey, uh, Marlene's son there, he recounted when this happened that after his mother was shot, she, uh, a clown, he saw a clown get into a white Chrysler LeBaron and has broad shoulders, big hands. So that set the police off to looking for a man being dressed up as a clown and responsible for this. And that also delayed the investigation.
1: Right. And as it turns out, according to prosecutors, it's not a man, it's a woman. And she's not six feet tall. She's not huge. Um, If she's wearing a clown costume, like granted, uh, the feet were probably big, right? Like the clown feet that you have in in your costume, um, but shouldn't necessarily have broad shoulders and things like that, depending upon what this costume was all about. But I I said her name, Sheila Keene Warren, Mm -hmm. the victim's name, Marlene Warren, What's the connection here, Chanley? What's the connection? What's the link?
5: What a love triangle this turned out to be. Michael Warren, Marlene's husband at the time, allegedly having an affair with one of his co-workers or his employee's wife, Sheila Keene. And after the murder of Michael's wife, Marlene, Sheila and Michael got married, Vinny. And they are still married.
1: Wow, and and it wasn't an immediate marriage. No. Right? It, it took a, it took a, a, I think more than a decade from the de- to actually tie the knot. But you've got before the murder the affair, and then after the murder they're together. Now I, I know love works in very strange ways, and tragedy and rebounds and all that. Uh, but I, I think that will be a big part of this case. And you know we often say. The prosecutors don't have to prove a motive, but it's always nice to have one when you're trying to convince a jury why someone would take someone's life. Here, that is perhaps one of the biggest, most compelling pieces of the case, is that connection.
5: Absolutely. who had the motive and the opportunity to commit this murder. Mike Warren, the husband, he has an alibi, Vinny. He was off at the races at the time his wife was murdered. And over the decades, the authorities, while he's lived under this cloud of suspicion as being part of this plot to do away with his wife, there was never enough evidence uh, for investigators to charge him. But there is, based on the DNA technology, enough, according to prosecutors, for his now wife, the woman he was having an affair with, to be charged with this murder. It's really
1: a twisted story. Very twisted. And, and some of the characters involved And Michael Warren's had his problems with the law Mm -hmm. through the years as well, but not never charged in this murder, his role in all this. I can imagine the jury in this case is just going to want to hear him speak, but I don't know if he does. I don't know if he does, which side calls him. I mean, do prosecutors call him as the husband of the of the victim or does the defense call him as the husband of the defendant? I, this it's insane.
5: It is insane. And, you know, there's still the suspicion that he had some role in his wife's murder. There are, I don't know, likely witnesses. I know that there are those who said that Marlene was telling people before she was murdered that she was scared of her husband. I'm sure there are witnesses out there uh, that have reported that he was asking people how much it would cost to do away with his wife before she was murdered. So there may be some circumstantial evidence there that he would not want to take the stand or maybe plead the fifth on, on some of that. Vinny, I'm sure he still has representation in an attorney.
1: And I'll tell you what, if I'm the prosecutor, I might want to bring some of that evidence in and, you know, and, and it'll be interesting to see the way that plays. There's, there's another um, aspect to this is eyewitness testimony and it's from 32 years ago that, Sheila Keene at the time, now Sheila Keen Warren, uh, purchased some balloons and flowers the day of at the supermarket. So you're going to have maybe a supermarket clerk or someone come in 32 years later to talk about that.
5: Exactly. And that's another issue because memories fade. It's been 32 years. And while these employees at that supermarket where she bought the flowers and balloons, these one of a kind balloons, mind you, only sold at this supermarket, they can testify that a woman came in with long, dark hair, meets the description. In fact, they identify Sheila Keen in a photo lineup as the woman who purchased those balloons, Vinny. Wow.
1: All right. Big, big case. The killer clown trial coming up in 2022. Uh, There's another one uh, in a real small town in South Georgia. Um, A young woman who was a a bit of a pageant uh, uh, queen, but also a school teacher uh, down in uh, Osceola, Georgia. And she was murdered, and this was another one. She was murdered in, in 2005, and this is another case that went cold. Then there was a podcast, the Up and Vanished podcast. And, and the reason she was a subject of the Up and Vanished podcast is that her, her remains have never been found, never, ever, ever been found. She just disappeared. She lived alone. Um, she had a dog, but she disappeared one day. And, and now they are going to try a man named Ryan Duke— but there's another guy named Bo Dukes, who's a, a big part of this case and this story. It's, it's a little confusing. Uh, but what can you tell folks about this upcoming trial of Ryan Duke for the murder of Tara Grinstead uh, in that small town in South Georgia?
5: Yeah, this is a complicated and convoluted case, another cold case, like you said, Vinny. And I mean, this was a beautiful woman inside and out according to her friends and family she was a beloved school teacher and but for beau dukes uh story to a brother of ryan duke had this this would probably still be unsolved uh, given what the authorities or the lack of evidence there at the scene so yes uh, it's a little complicated we have beau Duke and ryan duke not related similar last names but they're alleged to be a part of her death and disappearance. And it was Bo Dukes who shared with Ryan's brother that Ryan was responsible. Bo confessed to police that Ryan Duke told him that he Ryan broke into Tara Grinstead's home one evening and it was the intent to rob her, Benny, for drug money, but ended up strangling her. And then Bo confessed uh, to this. Uh, he said Ryan that he helped Ryan move Uh, Grinstead's body uh, and then helped burn her body. So he was convicted. Bo actually went to trial. He was convicted of lying to the police uh, in his part for this crime. Now it's Ryan's turn to go on trial and they're trying to pin him with the actual murder.
1: And Bo Dukes is the, is really the wild card in this case because Ryan Duke will point the finger at him. I think there's going to be maybe an admission or concession that uh, they took. They, they, he took part in the, um, and, and it just gets kind of gross, but it takes part in destroying the body of Tara Grinstead. They, I guess the story is, is that they destroyed her body in a fire at a, at a pecan farm uh, down there in South Georgia. But the question is, you've got two men disposing of a body. Which one is responsible for the murder? And that's what this trial is going to be about. Bo Dukes is saying it's Ryan Duke. Ryan Duke is saying it's Bo Dukes. And ultimately, it'll be up to the jury if they can figure it out beyond a reasonable doubt. And that may be the big, big challenge for them in this case. Uh, There is uh, some physical evidence. Uh, There's a confession. Uh, the defense is saying it is a false confession that he was strung out on drugs when all this was was taken, and that's been uh, fully litigated. There's a very powerful defense team in this case, uh, one of the best in the state. So we'll we'll see that case. Taking place, uh, Chanley, in a small town in South Georgia. That's going to be fascinating to watch. Um, Big 2022, Chanley. How many, uh, do you keep track of your frequent flyer miles, by the way? And and, and can you share that number with folks at home?
5: I do indeed. You know, I'm signed up for all of the Sky Mile points I can receive. I'm like a platinum member, uh, of course, but it really does help when you travel so much. I don't mind it. I actually really love going to new destinations and, and this job. So I'm looking forward to 2022.
1: You won't be flying into Osceola because I don't think they have an airport there. You're going to have to uh, fly into someplace close or just drive uh, straight from Atlanta. I I don't know exactly how to get there. But uh, Chanley Painter, Court TV legal correspondent on the road. Thank you so much. Thank you, Benny. Okay, when we come back, uh, my colleague, Michael Ayala, and, and he's my colleague here at Court TV, but was also my colleague at the old Court TV And he's going to join us to talk about uh, a couple more trials that we are tracking, um, including it's not over yet. The, the, The death of George Floyd was dealt with last year as it pertains to Derek Chauvin. But there were three other police officers there. We'll talk about
0: that when we return.
1: The huge trial of Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd. You saw it on court TV. Uh, But there's more scheduled for 2022 because Derek Chauvin was not the only police officer there that day. Not the only one charged. There's three others. There is uh, Thomas Lane, Alexander King, and Tutau, three other officers. And they are facing cases in state court and in federal court. And I want to bring in my Court TV colleague, uh, one of the anchors, his show's on right before mine every single night on Court TV, Michael Ayala. Michael, um, are you ready for 2022?
4: I am ready for 2022. You've mentioned this a few times, the fact that you know, with COVID and all the backups and closing of courthouses, we've got an incredible year coming up. I mean, there's a lot of trials that have been backed up, waiting to be tried. And 2022 is the year that they're going to find the light of day. And Court TV's cameras are going to be in many of those cases. So it's really, it's shaping up to be a fantastic year for us.
1: Yeah. On that on that note, I I was shocked when COVID happened that everything was stopped because, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, well, isn't every defendant entitled to a speedy trial? And all of a sudden, we we forgot all about speedy trials, uh, but now we've got to hurry up and, and catch up because these backlogs are real. And there's a lot of criminal defendants um, who are charged. They're all presumed innocent, right? Michael, isn't that the way our system works? They're all presumed innocent. A lot of them are behind bars waiting for their day in court.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, it's interesting because the, these, were, these were unprecedented times and you know a lot i know a lot of defense attorneys and you know i spoke to them throughout this thing and you know they were concerned about that very fact the idea that uh, yes, my client is presumed innocent, but he cannot get out on bond or perhaps maybe even wasn't offered bond. And so he's behind bars during this period. Now, there were all kinds of special rules passed uh, throughout the states uh, to cover this type of thing. But still, it's a concern for those sitting in jail. So you you want to get them into court as soon as you possibly can, because, again, they are, in fact, presumed innocent.
1: Now, this first case I want to talk to you about, uh, none of the defendants are are in jail. They're not being held. Uh, They are out on bond. And I'm talking about the other three officers implicated in the death of George Floyd, Alexander King, Thomas Lane, Tutau. I, I want your first reaction to the way you see these three officers versus Derek Chauvin, because personally, I see a a huge difference, huge difference. Number one, in in their roles that day, their position with the uh, police department, and and who the men are, and and their history and everything else. And I, I see a stark contrast between. King Lane Tao versus Derek Chauvin. Yeah, this is a tough one, Vinny. I'll be honest with you, because on one level, I,
4: I 100% agree with you. Um, when you talk about the position of the different officers, and I, I'm speaking about as far as in their careers, um, vis-a-vis um, Derek Chauvin, he was their training officer. He was the most senior officer by far at the scene. Uh, he seemed to be very much in control Um, And so I think even each individual officer, it can be said, can be uh, differentiated, the positions each one of them had in this situation. But then I look at the bigger picture and the idea that these are in fact uniformed police officers, they are on the street. What are they tasked to do to serve and protect? There was a situation that required service and protection And they didn't provide either of those things to George Floyd. And I know that the perpetrator was one of their own. That's part of the problem here. Um, We've talked about this many, many times, the idea that they don't necessarily police each other and there needs to be more of that. So on that level, I think perhaps there is culpability and, 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 and culpability the same as Derek Chauvin. So this is a very interesting case for me. I'm not sure a jury's gonna see it that way, but I think it's incumbent upon the state to take that approach and make sure that they make this jury understand what the responsibility of those officers were. And I thought that the prosecution in the Derek Chauvin case did a fantastic job of that, making this this jury under making that jury understand what the, the duty of Derek Chauvin was and how he just totally did not. Live up to that duty.
1: Now, one of the big twists in what's happening to these three officers is that the federal case will happen before the state case, and I was shocked and surprised by this. But I want to look at the charges. You're talking about the you know violating the civil rights of George Floyd, but it seems to me that prosecutors need to prove some level of intent by officers King, Lane, and Tao, a, a deliberate indifference to serious medical needs of George Floyd and willfully failing to help. It seems to me that um, prosecutors are going to have to prove that King Lane and and Tao together um, were deliberate in their actions, that they had indifference to his medical needs and, and, and they willfully failed to help. It's almost as if under these federal charges, you you seemingly have to prove that that these three guys, I'm not talking about Chauvin, Mr. Knee on the neck. I'm talking about these three guys were trying to harm George Floyd and wanted to make sure George Floyd was harmed. I don't know if it goes that far. Again, that language will have to be
4: banned about in the courtroom there in a federal courtroom. But I think it can be inferred from the actions of the officers. Um, which I think plays well into, a, a, I think it was Lane specifically who asked about, should we do something different in response to what was going on with George Floyd? So I think there are you know many different defenses there for these guys. But at the end of the day, I think you can infer one of the things that was very helpful to the state in the state case against Derek Chauvin was the definition used uh, for intent in that situation could be inferred by the actions of Derek Chauvin. I think you'll have a similar situation in federal court by the fact that they they basically ignored his pleas, did not do enough, um, and you can infer the fact that they perhaps intended the result. Um, again, a lot of that will have to do with what, what the jury is ultimately charged, but it does seem on its face as a, as a little bit of a higher bar than we saw in the Derek Chauvin case.
1: Yeah, I think it's a a, a much higher bar. I, I personally, I do, but we'll we'll see how it plays out, um, because I I think there's an additional element to what what is going on in their minds. And honestly, I mean, when I look at this case and I look at these three guys and I've listened to their statements and I watched the videos many many times, I don't think Alexander King wanted George Floyd to die. I don't think Alexander King wanted to harm George Floyd. I don't think Thomas. I don't think Thomas Lane wanted to harm him. I don't think he wanted him to die. Uh Taw didn't even touch George Floyd. He's doing crowd control. He's a, he's a bad. Uh, you know the things he says are, are ridiculous. But at the end of the day, he never even touched George Floyd.
4: Well, is it is is your reading of that particular charge that they had to intend the harm, or they had to deliberately ignore his rights?
1: Yeah, I, I don't think they're deliberately ignoring anything. I, I think they thought they were doing their job. I thought Lane was questioning an officer who was who was in charge of the scene, which who was Chauvin, saying, "Hey, should we do this?" But you know, it's like day four on the job. Uh, what on earth could he possibly have done? I I, I don't know. I don't. I, don't, I think it's. I, I'd like the truth to come out at, at trial. And I want to, I want to be honest. I want to be honest about who are these guys. I mean, I've heard interviews with family members of, of Alexander King, who's African-American from his family saying the reason he went into policing was to, to try to, to try to change things. And he didn't go in there to, to, to do harm. Well, he didn't and here change they are things. like,
4: he didn't change things. A man died under his watch. And at the end of the day, and at the end of the day, Vinnie, again, I think what what deliberate action has to be is the the rights they have to have ignored the rights and and the, the 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 what what was going on with George Floyd, and I think they absolutely, and I think this is the argument I would make, they made the choice to ignore him, for whatever those reasons were. Was it because Derek Chauvin was there? Was it because someone was telling them not to? Was because they went along with what was going on? But they made a deliberate choice. They were not. They they made that choice not to help him. And you could say that there was an intervening, superseding cause, and that is in the name of Derek Chauvin. But at the end of the day, they made a deliberate decision. So I don't think there's an issue there.
1: Well, do you think that de- the decision was deliberate or do you think that they were inexperienced? How many times have they dealt with a situation like this? It's the first time. They're just on the job. You come out of training, and 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 Thomas Lane is relying upon his training, talking about excited delirium. Is this excited delirium? Do we have to worry about that here? And Chauvin's say, no, no, no. And 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 Chauvin keeps telling, well, the, the medics are on their way. They're you know they, they had called for EMTs, and EMTs got delayed. All EMTs were say, delayed. Wow,
4: wow. My prosecutor friend suddenly becoming a defense attorney. Those are fantastic. No, no, no. Prosecutors. Those are to seek fantastic the truth. defense the arguments. Those Truth. are fantastic defense arguments, and those are the exact arguments that will be made. And the, to be honest with you, like I said in the beginning, there is a part of me that agrees with that reasoning. I do. And I think they are absolutely mitigating factors. I, but what, what I struggle with is what do they mitigate? Like, where do they fit? In getting to the actual truth of this case. That's where I guess we might be a little different. And quite honestly, I don't even say we're different because I honestly, I need to hear the evidence. I haven't come to a a, a, a hard and fast conclusion
1: on that point. Yeah, we'll we'll see. And to me, it, it's more about the jury instructions. <laughs> and, I agree, one hundred percent, with you. These there's, cases come down to these jury instructions exactly and, right. and how they're, and that's an important part of the case. Um, by the way, as a prosecutor, the way I prosecuted was for the truth, and and where I see prosecutors run into trouble is if they get um, if there is some level of an a- a intervening force in determining the way they look at a case, right? And sometimes it's political pressure and, and other things. And and I, I don't like sweeping these three guys up in the same pile with Derek Chauvin and prosecutors are doing that. Prosecutors want the same punishment, uh, same crime for the, they see no difference between these three and Chauvin. And I, as someone who l- watched the videos and, and understood a little bit more about the background, um. Than I did before I started looking at the case, see them completely differently. I'm not saying they're they're free of all liability for what they did. Um, and then you look at Tu Tao. I mean, Tu Tao What was tu Tao supposed to do? His job on the scene was to was to was crowd control, to keep things from getting even worse, right? Because if the crowd's out of control, police are going to respond. It's going to get ugly. So. What on earth was Two tau supposed to do there? What What is the prosecutor going to argue there?
4: You know, again, I I think it goes back to the same thing that Derek Chauvin was supposed to do. He was supposed to take care of George Floyd, and at some point, no, no,
1: but Two tau has nothing to do with George Floyd. Yeah, he has, he has to do with the crowd. To do, And
4: again, that's where we differ. I believe that each one of those officers had a duty to protect George Floyd from Derek Chauvin, and 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 just to bear that out, there have been rule changes in Minneapolis, Vinny, that require require officers to do just that. If they see another officer applying excessive force, they now have a duty
1: to intervene. And if they do not, they can face recrimination. Right. That's now. But that wasn't part of the training for these two rookies. And I, believe for two it was.
4: I believe it was. I just think it was something that had fallen through the cracks based on this whole thin blue line concept. But I believe it was, it just wasn't emphasized and it wasn't perhaps something that they necessarily believed in. But I think now they're letting them know that if you do this you will be supported by upper brass. See, I think it existed but what they knew was if they did do that, they would find themselves in a difficult position back at home base. They weren't sure they'd be protected by brass. They weren't sure they'd be protected by their other other, uh, fellow officers. But now they understand that this is your duty and they will, in fact, be protected. So it may change the way they approach that particular duty that they have.
1: So based upon this discussion, uh, this is why this is a huge case. Big case. Federal case first, then the state case. Federal case, no cameras in the courtroom. Please send a letter to Chief Justice Roberts about that. There's nothing I can do, folks. Okay, Michael, another trial that's creating a lot of buzz. And this one sort of snuck up on us. It's the suitcase murder trial out of Orange County, Florida. Sarah Boone is accused of locking her boyfriend in a suitcase, taunting him while he died. And she recorded the whole thing on her cell phone. It's, it's, it's unreal. I, you know, there's so many questions I have about what the heck happened that night. Um, But this one, a lot of interest online. And I think it's because no one has ever seen anything like this before.
4: I love this one, Vinny. I really do. It, It presents, you know, she's charged with second degree murder, which when I looked at this case and initially when I thought about it, I thought, wow, this is a depraved indifference to human life case for sure. And sure enough, According to the statute in Florida, second degree is depraved indifference to human life, and and I, I I know what happened here, and I wonder if her her defense is going to be able to curry some favor with this jury because what she was doing was she was trying to punish a man now. We have to wait and see if the evidence comes out, but there is at least some inkling that there was domestic violence in this situation. There was uh, some cheating going on. He perhaps wasn't treating her the way she wanted to be treated. But, you know, again, uh, we'll have to wait and see what the evidence plays out. But if that was the case, it seemed like she was trying to get back at him. She was trying to say, this is how I feel when you choke me. This is how I feel when you cheat on me. And she was making a point to him, which I think some people can relate to. Um, But then what happens next? Uh, Is it deliberate? Does she go upstairs and go to sleep to teach him a lesson? I don't think she meant to kill the man. I really don't. But clearly her actions were depraved and they were indifferent to his life. Um, She was obviously drinking. You can hear some slurring in her speech on those videos. So I don't know. This is going to be interesting to see where the defense stakes out a claim and which direction the prosecution goes in prosecuting this case.
1: How important do you think it is in this case for the jury to figure out or to know the circumstances under which he got into the suitcase? Right. Because the video starts. He's in the suitcase already. There's not video of him getting into the suitcase. So I don't know how he gets in there. Like how does he get into the suitcase? And, and how important is that in figuring out the potential criminal responsibility of Sarah Boone?
4: Yeah, you know, that goes to the idea. And that's why I said it was fascinating. When I looked at the case, I'm like, what kind of case? Is this a premeditated case? Did she premeditate this? Because she had to convince him to get in there. She certainly could not have put him in there herself. You know, had it been the other way around, you could say, well, maybe the guy forced her in there with, you know, using physical force or some other threat. But I don't think it was that way with her. He must've gotten in there because she suggested they, she suggested they were playing a game of hide and seek of some sort. They thought it'd be funny if he hid in that particular case, that's why he got in. All right, let's, let's buy that story. But did she put him in there specifically to leave him there in that way, I I don't know. And again, this is where this case is fascinating. Did she premeditate this thing from the beginning? It seems like they were getting drunk, getting high, doing something that it sounds like they did fairly regularly. Um, They were playing these games and it got to this point. He got in there as a joke. Again, when you're not in your right mind, you do things that perhaps you wouldn't normally do, like get in a suitcase and let someone zip you up in it. but again, he probably trusted her He was like, okay, we'll play here. We'll have a good time. you okay. You made your point. I let me out. And then she let him out. So that's where the issues come in.
1: Here's why I'm not buying the hide and seek game. Um, just recently, I had the opportunity to play that game with my granddaughter. And even she understands the rules, right? One person closes their eyes and the other person hides somewhere. The person who has to find the person hiding doesn't know where they are. That's the point of hide and seek. I hide, you seek me. So this was not hide and seek. It just wasn't. It was an offshoot of a game that they were playing, apparently. So this. Okay.
4: And again, let's keep in mind that with, you know, Sarah Boone, it involved altered states, right? These folks were in, it seems, altered states. And that can be, again, we don't know exactly, but she is claiming that, of course. And you can hear her slurring her words in the video that she takes. So there's clearly some kind of altered state going on there. And again, you know, it's hard to say what people will and will not do or what they find funny or what kind of games they play when they're in those kinds of states.
1: Yeah, I I love the way Michael can make what they were doing that night sound so nice, like altered states. No, they were, you know, come on folks. Watch, Watch the video, you know exactly what's going on there. Michael Ayella, watch him every night on Court TV, his program on Just Before Mine, uh, 6 to 8 Eastern, correct, Michael? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Always a
4: lead-in to Vinny. always enjoy it. Check me out. i get you caught up on what's happening throughout the day on Court TV. So if you're at work, can't quite make it to see what's going on, check me out. I'll get you caught up on what happened
1: that day, plus some other
4: interesting legal stories.
1: All right. Michael Ayala, thank you so much. Uh, we'll talk again. I'll see you in the studio. Uh, folks, uh, that is it for this week's podcast, and 2022 is going to be a huge, huge year for us. Now, all the stories that you heard about today, check the show notes. We'll have links uh, to information about them. And then make sure you watch your front row seat to justice each day and night so you get to watch some of these trials play out in real time. There's nothing more dramatic than than watching a trial. Because at the end there's a thing called a verdict, and you never know which way it's going to go. I've learned that lesson many, many times. If you um, have a digital antenna, make sure you rescan. I always remind you rescan that digital antenna, and uh, you will be able to watch Court TV. That's it, folks. I will I will see you on the television every night from eight to eleven Eastern. Have a great week, and don't forget to hug
0: the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to courttv.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.